it is a great pleasure today to have Troy Keller with us. He is from the Frederick County Public School System, which is part of the greater DC area. And Troy has a special focus and emphasis in the education world on special education. We're going to talk a little bit about that today, Troy, particularly because as everyone hopefully knows by now, or if you're just joining for the first time, we look at defining us as America's classroom, a classroom without walls, and we really see a greater role of education in this country as an anecdote to what we often get in short sound bites about complex topics, how we often get half-truths and stereotypes around certain populations who are seen as different. And our goal is to really provide a deeper conversation with those that are on the front lines of working on social justice issues every single day. So Troy, welcome. Great to have you. And I want to get started by getting a little background on your personal journey. Not only did you go through schools and come up with a traditional education, but you became an educator at a very young age. So give us some background about how you ended up in the Frederick County Public School System and the work you're doing there. Thank you, Stacey, for inviting me to today's podcast. So a little bit about myself is I actually did finish up high school early, which allowed me an opportunity to start college right at 17. So I finished up college, I started a bachelor's in psychology, and I finished that up right around 19. During that time, of course, you know, I completed some internships. And when I was completing those internships, I started working with individuals with disabilities and a domestic violence shelter. And that's what really sparked my passion for working with individuals with disabilities, specifically students that had autism or behavior issues. During that time, I've been a teacher, I've been a behavior analyst, I've also been an autism supervisor and an assistant director, and now a director. I think it's very important to support individuals with disabilities. Most school districts, it's only about 10% of the population, but their needs are so great that it takes a lot of staff to support their needs. And also one of our responsibilities is making sure that students, if they need to be identified, get the supports they need, but also making sure that we have mechanisms in place that we don't over-identify. So for me, I uh, like to be an advocate and support both sides. So ensuring that our general education students and teachers understand how those can be uh, taken care of, but then also on the other side, that if they truly need intensive supports, we have subject matter experts available in the school system that can look at their needs, analyze their needs, and put together action plans that can train everyone on how to support those students. So it's interesting that you were working in a domestic violence shelter and began working with people. I'm assuming it was children and adults with special needs. And I think one of the things we want to do in this podcast is really start to define words and terms. So when we hear special education, what kind of pictures are conjured up in our minds? Give some humanity and a face to the individuals that you serve and the role that you're in. And one of the places to start is I'm interested about the special needs population in a domestic violence shelter, because one of the things I think we know is that folks with special needs often have vulnerabilities and trust issues socially and emotionally that sometimes put them in situations where they're victimized. I don't know if it's more often than the rest of the population. You could fill us in on that. But that is a significant issue 
inside a special needs population and our need to see them and protect them as individuals. Am I on track with that? Or would you say it a little bit differently? No, you're absolutely right, Stacey. I think one of the things that we have to be cognizant of is that when we think about disabilities, everyone has different perception of what we define as a disability. But nowadays, one in four adults have a disability. And so it can be a mental health concern. It could be ADHD. It could be a learning disability, what we kind of call those hidden disabilities that outwardly facing when they're walking the streets, when you're interacting with them, you would have no idea that even a child might have a certain disability. That's one of the things that it really opens up vulnerabilities because these individuals are learning differently. And so obviously, as you begin to peel back those layers, you realize that they have needs and we have folks that need to advocate for them. And I think that for me, when we talk about your why, for me, that was huge is that we're in a world now where we all see and live and work differently. And we need folks that are willing to take the time to get educated about how to support different able learners and also advocate for their needs so that they aren't disenfranchised, because that's probably one of the biggest things that unfortunately is happening, not only in the education system, but in the workplace where because they may request an accommodation, we have laws and protections, but you still have those biases that exist. And so we need folks that are willing to be educated about needs and also understand that we have such diverse group in the world today that you really need folks that are taking the time to be champions of this inclusive approach. I think we're seeing a lot of changes across the nation that make me feel hopeful, but we still have to have many folks that are willing to continue to champion that change because there are such great needs out there. I think many people don't realize that the landscape of education has changed greatly. And some of us as educators know this, but this is even a huge learning area and change that will forever be the new shape of education is this whole child approach. And what I mean by whole child is that it is no longer the public school system responsibility just to teach them reading, writing, and math. We now have an obligation, especially for individuals with disabilities, even students that haven't been identified with disabilities yet, we have what is called a multi-tiered systems of support. And so we are now in the public school system problem solving not only their academic issues, but we're also looking at, you know, if they come from an English learner background, addressing that. But we're now addressing the mental health and behavior needs, because when you look at the framework of multi-tiered systems of support and that whole child, it's really the only way to address it. We think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If we are not supporting students and families' basic needs, we can't begin to get to that high rigorous learning of reading, writing, and math. They're not going to be available for learning. Okay, so I'm going to back you up for a minute, okay, because a lot of people may or may not have a general awareness of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But you said, you know, when you consider Maslow's hierarchy of needs, here's what we're talking about with this multi-tiered support. Give that to us in plain language and apply it specifically to a special education population, how that's a little bit different for a child that has disabilities, mental, physical, than for a child that's just moving through in a sort of a general track? So when we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the very first thing is our physiological needs. So do we have air, water, food, shelter, all of that? 
in most instances, obviously, when our kids walk into the public schools, they have that, but that's no longer the case. I mean, there is more and more students that are facing homelessness, the amount of sex trafficking that unfortunately occurs in certain areas of the U.S. and throughout the globe. There are many things that impact their ability to get active sleep, but even the food portion. One of the things that many school districts have done now is we offer breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And not only are we offering breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we're also making sure that on the weekends that they get food that they can take home. Because we know that there are certain populations that are just not getting access to the healthy, robust food that they need. And so that's the baseline that we all need, basically, when we think about how can we survive as humans. And then that next one is safety. That having that access to the personal security, feeling safe, whatever environment that they're in. And that then allows them to open up to building friendships. That's that next level of hierarchy of needs. And then even then actually begin to address their self-esteem and then even their individual introspection or as Maslow calls it, individualization and so self-actualization. So for obviously for students with disabilities, that's just so much more heavier because they may have the physiological needs and the safety needs met, but the social nuances and the navigation that they have to go through to create effective and meaningful relationships can be very hard on them. I mean, you can take an individual with ADHD and if their ADHD is a major deficit for them, sometimes even having that executive functioning where they're planning in their mind to have a conversation with a peer can be so much more troublesome than obviously an individual that is that social butterfly and just is able to talk to everybody really quickly. It takes a lot of planning. And sometimes we as individuals, adults, everybody, we take that for granted because for us, we're able to just so readily find the language, find the needs to be able to communicate to others. And so because communication is so huge, that really does put a major deficit on so many of our individuals because of their potential disabilities are their actual disabilities that they're dealing with every day. I think it's so important that we explain this, Troy. So really thank you for that. I mean, a lot of people know what Maslow's hierarchy of needs are, but they but they don't think about it in these terms. And I think for me, working in the schools and doing what we do through Defining Us and other programs, I was amazed the first time I walked into an alternative school in the Bronx in New York and five of the kids had their heads down on their desk. And there was a teacher teaching at the front of the room. And I said to the principal who was walking us through, don't you want them to be sitting up? Don't you want them to be paying attention? And he said to me, we have periods of the day where we allow them to participate as they can, because for many of these kids, this is their only safe place. For many of these kids, it's the only place that they can get sleep. And their homes are chaotic enough that they can't even sleep well there. So they're exhausted. And I think it's important, I take you back to the domestic violence shelter for you to explain not only just for students with disabilities, but also all students. Because if you come out of those environments to some degree, you come into school with a mental or social or emotional need or disability, if we use that in a broader term. And when we hear people say, well, this is something parents should be handling. If I'm living in a domestic violence shelter, I may not be equipped to do do that. I don't have the resources to do that. I just, I'd like you to speak to that. 
for a minute because I don't think people get a visual picture of what is actually happening in many school systems. And it's not just New York City, it's in every school system. And you've been in what, five? Is that what we said? Yes. Four or five? Yeah. So across the country, this is happening and these needs need to be met. Yes, exactly. That's one thing that I really do want to share with everyone is that we're now in a situation where the landscape of education has truly changed. Prior thoughts of that students come into the school to get educated for their basic needs, you know, reading, writing, math, like we talked about, that's changed. We now have such diverse learner needs that as we are preparing educators to come into the public school system, they have to be aware of what they're signing up for. Because what we're talking about is we have students coming from all different shapes and needs throughout our environment of what that looks like. And so many of us hear about trauma and how the pandemic has impacted us. But prior to that, we already had kids in trauma. We unfortunately, because the public school system in the United States requires everyone to have a free, appropriate public education, that means we open up our doors to anybody. We have to. And so those students that come into our doors have all different backgrounds, all different learner histories. And so many of those things now, the reality is that they may be homeless. If they're in a domestic violence shelter, that means that they most likely have witnessed physical abuse, and they may have either potentially been sexually abused. That's some heavy stuff. But the reality is, is that is why we now have these wraparound supports. We have psychologists in the school system. We have therapists in the school system because we have to be able to individualize their needs. And that's one of the things that some teachers, they have to take a step back and realize like, oh, I didn't realize I signed up for this, or I didn't realize this is the reality of public school now, but it ultimately is. The days of being able to have a class of 25 students and, you know, maybe five to 10 of them have some needs, that's no longer the case. When you look at a typical kinder first grade classroom, at least half of the students in certain populations are going to have needs that have to be addressed. And that might mean that you as the teacher are figuring out ways to get them connections of different supports, connecting them to the social worker, connecting them to the counselor, you know, working with your school team to help them get additional academic intervention, but also helping support their mental health needs. That's why in the school system, we have pushed out social emotional learning because we have to give everyone that same foundation, that same baseline. So I want to take this now and I really want to debunk some myths. Okay. So when we are talking about this kind of issue, we are really talking about broad populations with broad traumatic experiences. And we are not, however, asking teachers that are trained in math to solve their psychological problems. I want to make sure that, you know, we often hear Teachers aren't equipped for this. Counselors aren't equipped for this. They can't do this. You live this work every single day. You live the concerns of teachers. You've been there yourself. You manage teachers every single day. And so it's more complex than that, right, Troy? The systems are more complex than that. I mean, what we're really saying is a school has become the place that people can come to to receive services, which is a different conversation, then we need every teacher to become an armchair psychologist. Yes. 
So in, in so many instances, I do think that is the perception that is being put out there is that you, that we are asking teachers to be jack of all trades. Now, it would be ignorant of me to say that teachers are not overwhelmed and stressed right now. That is, that is very apparent. However, school systems ethically and morally have begun to realize that a teacher can't do it all. And so as needs throughout the U.S. have increased year after year after year, we build more positions. Every single year when we talk about budget, we talk about Okay, so yes, we know that we're going to have teachers throughout the building that are going to take care of these grade levels, but what other positions does this school need? So in many instances, schools now have access to a robust level of staffing, whether that be in their school or be attached to their district, and that person can come to the school multiple times a week to provide services. And so the typical framework of thinking that a student shows up to school, they have one teacher when they're in elementary, and they go into that classroom and they learn everything, that's just no longer the shape of education. Now a student shows up, and so they'll start their day with a teacher, but then maybe they have some social skill needs or maybe they're struggling because of what's going on in their home life. So there may be 30 minutes a day where they get a pull out small group session with the counselor, with a therapist, maybe even a psychologist or even a social worker where they're working on that whole child approach. So we're teaching students that here's how you can cope and handle your day. What do I do when I get frustrated with my peers and I don't want to be at school? Or what do I do even if I get frustrated at my teacher? And how can I communicate effectively to my teacher, to my peers that I need you to back away? I need a minute. And so we're now explicitly teaching those skills. And so while in the past, I think a lot of people thought that doesn't have to happen in the school system, but the reality is that we realized that there are students that are even individuals that don't have a disability and they need that. Those were prerequisites that unfortunately were not taught to them by their family or their family didn't have the ability because they're working 24-7. And so this is the changing ever landscape of the public school system in which we have to be cognizant and say, if this is what you need, then you have a right to getting it. And that's where we and that's what we've had to say. And so we've had to build into our budget beyond just the typical teacher and paraprofessional support, they need so much more. So any individual student, you're going to start looking at, you're going to see like, oh, while you were in the public school system, you not only did you get access to academics, but you were going to a counseling group, you were working on communication with the speech therapist. Later on in high school, you were learning vocational skills, all of that. It goes beyond just the reading, writing and math. Yeah. And I think really, Troy, what I hear you saying is the conversation is not, <laughs> should we do this? We are doing it. It's, it's not, should the public schools be doing this? Should they be taking it on? Should they not be taking it on? Students are showing up to your doors every day. Education is the one vehicle that allows them a pathway to exposure of all sorts of resources, opportunities, ways of thinking that is not really available to a large group of children and the future generation anywhere else in society. Would you agree with that? I mean, where else are they going to get these services? Yes. I mean, because so many of our students do access the public school system, that's where it has to happen. We have to begin to think about 
and so many schools already do. But the reality is, is that if we don't do this now and we don't to con- continue to invest in this type of approach, school systems will have significant discipline problems. Students will be kicked out of schools. Then we'll continue to have decreased um, graduation rates. I mean, and that is the reality of some school systems now because they're having to figure out how to problem solve in this nature. They know that it pays off because they're seeing the increase in graduation rates, the decrease in discipline, but the ones that aren't are the ones that are still tweaking it. They're still seeing these troubling things occur where students have trauma and they're walking into the building and they're breaking down and, you know, and they're having trouble throughout the whole day because systems you know, are continuing to revamp and ensure that they do have access to the robust whole child approach and not just a teacher. So let's stay with that for a minute, because I want to talk a little bit about outcomes. And that's really where you're going. I mean, I'm assuming, and I think what I'm hearing you say is that the, on this, on a scale, you know, on a continuum, if you will, when you take students who feel marginalized, feel that they don't belong, that cannot navigate in the same way the majority of the population does. At the extreme level, if you don't deal with those issues and try to help them assimilate into the population and have success in a population at the extreme level is discipline issues and violence. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, the the reality is that when we don't provide our students what they need, it's going to manifest into other areas of concern. And so as they navigate the public school system, if they say, for instance, let's take a child that is struggling socially and emotionally, and year after year, they're not getting their needs met. The reality is the research shows that they will eventually drop out of school. And sadly, what happens is that when those needs are not met, not only dropping out of school, that then results into potential gang involvement and even continuing disabilities, conduct disorder, oppositional defiance disorder. And so this is why when you hear about the public school system or just intervention for early childhood, it is key. Because the amount of time that you can spend with the younger individuals, supporting them, providing them interventions to address their academic, their social, emotional needs, their physical needs, then the less time you may have to spend come middle school because you remediated it at an early age. I mean, and sadly, that doesn't always happen because kids that are transient, if they move from district to district, they don't get those needs, which is why we have to continue to offer those types of services in middle school and high school, because we don't want to give up on anybody. When they walk in, we need to immediately begin to triage their needs. We need to understand their background. And it's the responsibility of the school system to figure out what plan can we put together for you so you can be successful. And so you can go on post-secondary because that's the other thing is that not only now are school systems like saying, looking at graduation rates, we're tracking individuals once they leave our high school buildings. We're saying, did you go to college? Did you find a technical skill? Did you maintain a job of employment and things of that nature? And those are things, those are other indicators that we're looking at to see are what we offering, is this successful? Is this truly working? Is it addressing the whole child and supporting an individual that doesn't wanna go to college? 
but wants other opportunities. And that's something that, you know, we also look at now is what can we do in the school system to support students that don't want to go to college, but need other technical trade proficiencies so that they have opportunities once they walk out of the public school. Troy, I, again, I want to demystify and I want to redefine or broaden definitions for the listeners that take us beyond what we see in the headlines or what we see in social media or memes. So I want to talk now a little bit about this word disability. Disability and special education. Because for many adults that are middle-aged or older, when you say special education, something pops up in their head, Mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, they went to schools potentially where there were the folks that were in special ed. There were folks that were integrated into a classroom or not. There may have been separate special education classes going on. And what typically pops up into their head is somebody with a physical disability. When we talk about special education now and disability in school now, we're talking about a much broader concept. Can you put some words around that for us? Yes. So in the 70s, Congress passed a law, IDA, Individuals with Disabilities Educational Act, and that really set the landscape and infrastructure for where we're at now. It's been revised in the early 2000s, and hopefully it'll be up for another revision soon. When that was set, that basically said public school systems cannot deny the rights of an individual with a disability, and they must educate them. That's the most basic premise, is that they have a free and appropriate public education. Not all of our students have that. And since then, it has been refined, and we continue to understand those unique needs. The really awesome thing is that Parents that have children with disabilities in the public school system have many protections under the law. So basically, every single year we create, if a student does qualify under special education, and I'm going to talk about other areas as well, but if they have a disability, and a disability can be as something as simple as they have ADHD, we know that as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. If that impacts their learning and the data shows that after interventions before qualifying as a student with a disability and they're still not being successful in the public school system, they can get protected under special education law. That then affords them what is called an IEP, an individual education program. And so that student, if you met that student that had ADHD, many of us, I will profess that I've in the past, probably my ADHD has been horrible when I was in uh, grad school and I still have executive functioning deficits, but you know, I've been able to learn to cope with those and learn skills. But I say that to say like, you will meet a child and you might like think that they're hyperactive, but you would have no idea on outward facing that they actually have a disability. You know, because we, have, we see many kids that look hyperactive. We don't know if they truly have a disability. And so obviously it can be something as simple as ADHD, but we now are fading into, we have many students that have learning disabilities. They can interact with their peers throughout the day. They're a very charismatic child, but then when it comes to writing, they cannot get their thoughts on paper. And so we have testing instruments nowadays in which we can actually test that child and and truly prove that they have a written expression disability and they need additional support. So that IEP affords them those rights. 
Now, to your point, Stacey, so many people think that special education is a place, is a location, and those kids don't get to be a part of uh, the typical general education mainstream classroom. That is a major complete misnomer. Even when I started over 15 years ago, that is no longer the landscape. Um, by law, it is required when, the, when individual teams write that plan, they have to say, how can we educate you in what is called the least restrictive environment? Meaning that you have a right under the law to as much time that will ensure that you're still making growth in the general education classroom. So this is why the whole concept of hiring multiple individuals and not just teachers exists because we have teachers, special education teachers that have a different training and degrees than what our general education staff have. And so we have them pushing into classrooms. We have what is called a co-teaching method. And that's where you could go into a classroom. You'd have no idea who the special ed teacher and the gen ed teacher is, but you would see two teachers in there and they are working with a group of 25 kiddos and they're supporting all of their needs. And there's most likely students in there that do have an IEP and they have a disability. You wouldn't know. And then we have other opportunities where some students don't have intense needs. And so maybe they just need the help of a paraprofessional. That paraprofessional goes throughout the day to help support that student, help support the, the general education teacher. And obviously we do have students that may have very unique set of circumstances. They require a smaller group class. So they get pulled out, but maybe they'd only get pulled out for their reading time because they don't, they, they, they do fine throughout the rest of the day with the support that they get, the accommodations and the modifications that they get from their general education teacher. So the really nice thing about special education nowadays is it truly has to be individualized. We have to present the whole gamut of options to parents and what we call it, it's called the continuum of services, meaning that there are so many different wide array of options available for a student to help problem solve their unique needs. And so that plan is created every single year. It can be modified at any time throughout the year if a student is not making progress or if a parent wants to come back to the table. But by law, you must meet every single year to talk about that plan. And then throughout the year, in addition to students that get report cards, we all get report cards. We also get what are called progress reports. And those progress reports talk about those individual goals that the team selected to demonstrate that that child actually is making progress in the areas of need. So that's special education, but believe it or not, there's one other area that exists beyond the public school system that many people in the workplace know about is the 504 law. So 504 protects individuals with disabilities as well. 504, unlike special education, identifies that yes, you have a disability, but it doesn't provide services. Instead, what it will provide is accommodations. So if you maybe, you know, going back to the example of a child with ADHD, maybe their ADHD isn't quite as severe, and so they don't need additional services, but they need some tweaks within their curriculum. And so that could be protected under a 504 plan. We have some students that have medical needs that they cognitively are fine, they're learning, but they have a medical need that maybe a nurse needs to monitor that could be protected under 504 as well. And so the landscape of special ed in 504 is so vastly large and individualized that the former thinking of that 
you get identified with a disability, you're going to a different school or you're going to a, a classroom and you're never going to be seen again. That just one by law, you can't do that anymore. But two, we just the, our understanding of student needs has greatly changed in the past 40 years. And Troy, it's so critical that we remove the stigma. Correct, because exactly. this is broad populations. These are kids that need a variety of individual plans, individual attention. It is not this narrow stigma that's based on deficit. And what's been really interesting for me is how when you bring these students along and when you help them reach their full potential, which every child should have the human right to be able to have the resources to reach their full potential. It increases the interesting complexities, relationships of the workforce, because we often now, or at least I do, meet people in the workforce who's who, who are very different. And I don't mean different from a race standpoint or religious standpoint, but they're just different in how they navigate the world and how they communicate, for example, and opening up our hearts and minds to be able to accommodate for that. What I mean by accommodate for that and actually embrace that, embrace different skill sets so that we're not forcing people to fit in one box. What I think I'm hearing you say now with special education and with dealing with students that have disabilities is that we've really moved to another level in education of saying, you know what, you don't have to fit my mold. You don't have to fit my mold. I mean, I have to say, you know, as a child, the ADD thing is it's very definitely part of my personality. And as a young student, I was in trouble. I was talking too much. I was sort of out there, much more impulsive, all the things that come along with that. And the result was bad grades. And then on top of the bad grades, now you feel bad about yourself because you have the bad grades and that hurts your motivation. And now you're not sure you can do the work. And so you go into a different kind of path, which is a more social path than an academic path. All those things happen. And I would imagine that many adults listening to this podcast can remember those nuances of their own education. And so it sounds to me like we're saying, you know, we're not going to make you fit. We're going to make you successful. We're going to give you the opportunity not to try to fit to my world, but to help you be successful in the world. Is that a correct assessment? Absolutely. One of the things I think that so many educators now know is the reality of differentiation of supports. And so when our students walk into our classrooms, they may all be third graders on paper, but where they're at in their educational framework may not be the case. We may be, have students that are still academically learning at a first grade level. We have some at second grade and, we, and we're going to have some that are at grade level. And so that's the basic that everyone has that support to is now the differentiation of framework. But now as we move up and we enhance the needs even more, that's where we get that individualization of support. So if they need an IEP, we have experts coming in, either working with the gen ed teacher or if that student needs pullout support, providing them explicit instruction on how to handle their ADHD, how to cope with their written expression disability. And so 
I think that you brought up a good point is that, you know, in the past, our students would struggle and they would have to, they would get disciplined because they were talking too much or things of that nature. And now we have figured out not only academic strategies to help them cope with their ADD, but we've also figured out behavioral strategies to help them cope, to reinforce that there are certain times that you have to listen to other people. And then there's other times that you know, you're able to communicate and you have time. I think like the one example you brought up earlier of, at that alternative school, so many people in the past thought when a child was laying their head down, they're not listening. Now we've realized that there's so many different ways to communicate understanding. And so I have had kids and we've had to help educators understand this because that is sometimes the old way of thinking is that if they have their head down, they didn't hear anything I said, and they're not going to be able to do the assignment. But as soon as the teacher gives the direction to say, okay, let's open up our books to this page, that student is, you know, right on the spot because they have great auditory comprehension. And so I think that's one of the things that we're now seeing is that there's so many different ways that individuals can learn. And that cookie cutter is just no longer the reality of the public school system. And that's the awesome thing that I love to see is when you have teachers embrace that and they're putting groups together that have like abilities and they're really differentiating their supports because while you may be an individual that has a disability, you're absolutely right. Like we talked about earlier, you don't necessarily have to be in special education. You don't have to have a 504. You may be given enough tools adequately from your general education teacher to cope with that disability. And the reality is, is we all have disabilities. <laughs> we oh, all yeah. have, it's, it's we, we, we all, all have strengths and weaknesses. We all have assets and deficits. We all are this interesting combination of mixed needs and we are connected and we have universal things that have to happen in order to be educated and to reach our full potential. But our uniqueness is also where education can potentially really liberate. Now I'm going to take you to another emotionally charged word or a word that is often um, has limited definition. And that word is equity. And equity has been hotly debated in the country. Equity, and uh, there are a lot of groups around the country right now where diversity and inclusion and equity are really being questioned, and particularly in schools and in particularly specific departments around DEI. And so when we talk about equity, <laughs> that is a broad word. I want you to tell me how it really plays out in the special education world, because we often associate in our minds equity just with race or equity with very you know, specific populations. And I've had many people say to me, that means giving people resources and, you know, they don't have to work hard. I've actually had somebody talk to me about that. And I want you to give us some context for equity and how it works in the special education world and for the children that you see daily. I'll first start with teacher perception and even you know, administration perception of uh, individuals with disabilities, and then get into the fiscal implications of equity. 
So in the past, when I have trained teachers or principals about our students with disabilities and, uh, you know, me saying things like, well, we need to give kids what they need and that is going to look different. So, you know, getting what you need is going to look completely individualized and educators over time slowly have adopted that understanding and notion. Obviously, in some circumstances, it stresses individuals out because they're like, that's not fair that that student gets to take a 15 minute break, but everybody else has to continue learning. But then you have to understand and, and go through that minutia of the trade-off. Would you rather that student have a 15 minute break, get themselves back together and be ready for learning? Or would you rather have tantrums throughout the whole day on and off because you didn't offer those breaks? And quite honestly, it's not the students that are saying, why is Johnny getting a break? I mean, you know, every now and then that might be the case. Well, then maybe that student needs a break as well. It's usually the adults. The adults are the ones that are perplexed about, well, why are we doing this for this student and not for the other student? And that's where we're trying to break down those walls and barriers of understanding that we're all built differently. That child now is protected under law. So we have to put a plan together to make sure they're successful. So obviously the law protects it, but breaking down these biases has been huge. And I think that for the most part, most educators that are now sticking around, they understand it. They understand that in order to have a successful classroom, I'm going to have to offer differentiated needs because I have to level the playing field. Now, one of the things politically that I think is the hardest thing to grapple in the public school system is the fiscal component. Is every district deciding how they will invest in equity and how they will ensure our students with disabilities are gonna be successful. I was fortunate enough to work in a prior district where they did create a funding model that was truly individualized and it was equity driven in my mind. And what that looked like was they didn't just say, okay, this is our pot of money we've gotten from the state, we've gotten local, and we've gotten from the federal government, and we're just going to divide it up evenly amongst all of our schools in the county. No, they looked at indicators. They made a data-driven decision to say, this area of town is low socioeconomic. That's one indicator. They have this many students with disabilities. They have this many students that are English language learners. They have this many students that are gifted that, you know, on and on and on of individual indicators that may give them a weighted amount of money. And so then it was truly individualized from this perspective of looking at those indicators. Now, did they need to continue to revise year after year to ensure that all appropriate indicators were being looked at? Absolutely. But it was a start. Because the reality was that there were certain parts of town in which students could be educated at this amount of money and truly get the support that they needed versus there were other parts of town and based on their student population and maybe they had more students with disabilities because of those needs, they needed more money. They needed access to those providers that we talked about of therapists, wraparound support, social workers, psychologists. And so that team, that school needed that dedicated support. That's a true equity vision. When you're truly saying that the school system as a whole gets this much money, but we have to be realistic and understand that this school is facing a lot different needs than this school. And then even when you get into the school, diving down further, these students 
have a lot more unique needs than these students. It's a lot of front-loaded work. And I think that sometimes is the downside is that's where people become burdened and worried. And so they don't front load the work. And that's where we lose the hope of equity. And we hear about equity all the time and the debate on the surface level or on the general level, if you're paying somewhat of an attention and you're hearing it, you know, here and there is really based around race to a large degree, but equity means a whole lot more than race. It applies to multiple layers inside school populations on a variety of levels. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, in addition to looking at typical demographics and understanding the research within your community about how individuals, people of color may be disenfranchised, but it goes beyond that because where's their economic status? Do they have a disability? So many different indicators. That's where we have to take the time to truly unpack it all and realize. And then that's where we're also as adults unwrapping those biases. I think that's the sensitive part of equity. People get very frustrated because they have to look and they have to have that introspective conversation with themselves to say, no, this is something I'm having a hard time accepting, but no, this is what kids need and they deserve. What I hope we're accomplishing with this conversation with you is broadening the perspective so that you can take a look at the biases and have a different lens and how you evaluate these key words. Because if we stop talking about equity, if we don't want to look at diversity, if we don't want to look at inclusion, if we don't want to take an acronym like DEI and say, you know what, that has no place in the schools, we really are shutting down a whole system. I mean, that, that has implications on whole child. It has, it has far-reaching implications. If you could just sort of help us understand that a little bit more, and then we're going to move into some of the really positive outcomes of working with those kinds of terms and issues. That just goes back to, we, we have to understand that the public schools open up their doors to everyone. We are not a private school system. We don't have the option to say, sorry, you don't fit our criteria. You can't be here. And so this is where we need champions, champions that want to get around equity, that want to get around inclusion, diversity, because this is the reality of the public school system. And COVID, whether better for worse, has completely changed the landscape of how we will forever see education And I think this is a great opportunity to everybody rethink their practices. So if they're if they're not having that equity mindset of ensuring that every individual gets an opportunity to be successful and that we create those individualized plans and great educators are doing that across the nation. They're looking at the individualized needs of their kiddos and not saying that kid has to go into special education because this is not working. Instead, they're saying, hey, let's try this out. Let's try this out. And believe it or not, they're responding. And it was something that a non-special education staff member was able to provide. And so now we have also decreased the number of individuals we're qualifying as students with disabilities because we are having that mindset of, let's not put labels on you but let's look at your needs and let's try to make an individualized plan to help support you. 
and then evaluate it. People making data-informed decisions and having those multidisciplinary conversations, I think, are just so critical in the school system to continue to make change. Troy, let's wrap up here because I'm certain that for as many years as you've been doing this, you can also speak to not the deficits and how we sort of help students overcome certain things or navigate differently, but really the assets that someone with disabilities potentially brings to a population. And that when we open up these pathways and these channels for kids, they bring assets to a classroom, to a community, to a building, a school building that we can't find maybe in other places. And so how much richer we all become if we can rethink our language in our heads and rethink the pictures in our heads and start to question our own biases and try to look at this from a different lens. I think that is one of the most powerful things of the public school system is, you know, we start seeing kids as early as three years of age. We even have a system connected to infants and toddlers as well. And so when we start having our kiddos walk into the school system, they get to see such diverse group of kids. And I think that um, I've gotten to observe that year after year about the interactions that our kids make with other individuals, if they have disabilities, if they have special needs, whether that's autism or any disability, even if it's a physical need. Individuals with disabilities have such great resilience. And I have learned that on a personal and professional level, but I've seen kids learn that as well. They champion for these students. They want them to be successful too. And that's the awesome thing about inclusion is instead of saying that that old school thinking of, no, this kid doesn't belong here. They need to go to a different school. They need to go to a different program. We now make sure that everyone is included and it helps everyone learn. It teaches them the ability to really thrive in this world. So as they work with their peers year after year, when they go into the workplace, they're going to know how to work with a diverse group of individuals because they've been exposed to it. Not everyone gets that opportunity. If you are to choose a, uh, you know, a private school system or something like that, so often you may only be exposed to a certain group of folks throughout your tenure of education. And here in the public school system, you get that opportunity. And not only is it there, but we're ensuring that when there are groups of different abled learners, that we're educating our kids about that different abled learner so that that individual is accepted and supported and fostered. And it's not something that is taboo. It is not something that is misunderstood. And so often it builds a community of just this great inclusive approach. And when you're walking into that building, there's inclusive support everywhere inclusive support of race, inclusive support of gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, et cetera. All of that is happening in the public school system because of the fact that our doors are open to all of our learners and we have obligation to support all of our learners in the U.S. So Troy, I think you've maybe met Tara Tadlock, but prior to you, we had a podcast with Tara Tadlock and she has a podcast called Normal with Autism. And I love that name normal with autism, because I think that's a way for listeners to begin to 
sort of adjust their thinking. And I'm curious as to how you would respond to that and also what you'd like to say to the listeners today about if I'm listening and I'm, I'm learning, right? And I'm starting to see this based on what we've been talking about today from a different frame of reference, whether they're a teacher, most teachers know about a lot of this, obviously, but you know, what would you recommend for the general listening public? What's so critical to our society right now and the time that we're in? Yes. I would say that, you know, when I, when I hear that phrase normal with autism and I've worked with the autism community for so long and that, and they have taught me so much because that is a one unique disability where they talk about, you know, it's a spectrum disorder. And so many of them don't feel that they have a disability. Individuals that are on a certain wavelength of the spectrum, so to speak, that's just who they are. And I think in many instances, even when you've had a chance to interact with the gamut of individuals with special needs, they will tell you. And I think it's uh, what, what their perception is and, and how they feel. Some of them are fine with saying, yes, you can identify me as an individual with a disability. Some of them like, no, this is not a disability. This is who I am. And this is what I need from you. And so I would say that's probably the biggest thing is for those that can openly communicate that, listen, take the time to listen and be reflective of what they're saying before you go into typical preconceived notions of, or maybe even your prior experiences of the, of another individual with the exact same disability, because that is one thing that in the autism world, that's another thing that people say a lot is once you've met one individual with autism, you've met one individual with autism. I would say that about all disabilities. And that's really where it's at now is that it's so awesome to be in uh, this time where we are beginning to, as large groups, begin to accept disenfranchised groups, be open to understanding their needs, be open to advocating for them. And that's the really hopeful and inspiring thing right now that's happening in the world is that we're looking at folks not based on groups, not based on identifiers, but who they are as an individual. And I think that's so key when you're supporting disenfranchised groups. I couldn't agree more, Troy. I mean, so well said. We are in transformative times and, and it is transformative to be able to open your world and include. And I think that the public schools are on the leading edge of that work. And it's why it's so important for us at Defining Us to have educators and to have educators talking about the complexity of these issues and how we really are changing society. And we hear so much negative. So I want to give you an opportunity at the end here to talk about the positive, because I think we want to focus on the one-offs, the people that abuse the system, the people that ask for special help for their children. And we hear all of these things that drive a fear in people. So can we just close with you speaking to how many are benefiting and how much positive is working in our favor with this kind of uh, mindset and the distractions of us not focusing on the positive and instead focusing on the negative. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's total reality. A lot of people sadly are focused on the negative right now. The pandemic has greatly impacted the educational workplace. But one of the things we took the time as a district to talk about the pearls of pandemic. And out of that, 
the amazing thing is that, you know, one of the things we decided as a district is we now have a virtual school, K through 12. We have about 1,500 students that said, this is not just in response to the pandemic, but I learned that being in a virtual setting, I'm learning better. I'm excelling. So we wanted to open that up. And so moving forward, we will always have a virtual program for families that, that may be a better fit. And that, I think, is the pearl is us understanding that the way that we interact with students, the way that we interact with adults is now forever changed. People that had the preconceived notions of that we must interact in a certain way, we need to be in, in person. Obviously, the pandemic has changed that. We now are able to connect with so many more individuals because we are utilizing technology and, and things of that. I mean, and that's also even helped in the educational system. We've learned how to help support our students because we've had to stretch our frame of mind on how to provide them an education because of what the pandemic brought us, you know, and then the wonderful thing is that we have, we do have kids back in the schools now. And while some of them may be struggling, some of them, this was so evident that they needed this day-to-day -day structured experience. They are thriving. They're happy. They get to see their peers. They're communicating. You know, even our individuals that um, don't verbally communicate, they're utilizing their devices to communicate with their peers and their peers know how to respond to that. We've had opportunities for our older kids in high school where they're getting a chance to go and work in the community again through community-based and learning experiences. And that's key because the more that we connect with our community and have opportunities for them to learn job skills while they're in the school system, that connection is so important. And so that's one of the awesome things that we've gotten to see recently is them getting to reconnect with these communities and organizations to work on their skills so that they are able to individualize citizens. When they get to walk out of the public school system, they, they get these opportunities and they are given a framework that will help them be successful. That's the other thing of it is it, it's not just getting a great education while you're in the public school system, but now it's even, what are we doing to help her prepare for the rest of life? What kind of job can you maintain once you leave us? Did we ensure that you had those supports available? That's another thing that I don't think that many people know is that when you're in the public school system, if you have an individual that does have a disability, we create what's called a transition plan. And that transition plan is all about what opportunities do you need access to beyond high school? If you're going to go the college route, okay, great. What can we do if you have a disability to help you get ready for college? But if you're not going to go that route, like so many individuals may not choose to do, what kind of job skill training can we get now in the public school system? We have a program that's with an agency that teaches our individuals with disabilities, intellectual disabilities, how to become a culinary artist. So they get to go through a culinary institute and they actually leave being employed. And so there's just so many great opportunities that do exist out there. And even through the pandemic, we're still facing adversity, but we're rising above it. And I think that's the thing that we have to continue to say that we can do this, that if we can get through the pandemic, we can get through whatever our next obstacle is. Troy, thank you so much. This has just been a true pleasure. So great to have you with us today. And we will do some notes on the podcast page for those who are interested. 
if people have questions, want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah. So if you have any questions, you can reach out to me via email. It's troydkeller at gmail.com. Okay. We'll make sure we can get that on the site. Okay, great. Thanks so much. It was great to speak with you today and we'll be in touch. Thanks. Have a good one. Thank you.